Thank you very much, Rabbi Singer. It uh, means a lot. So it's a um, transatlantic LL flight 36,000 feet over the ocean. All of a sudden, some guy in the front row, bloodshot eyes, reaches under his seat, pulls out an Uzi, nobody knows how he got it through security, spins around in a terrified cabin full of passengers and screams, all right, who is a Jew? Some guy in 34C raises his hand and says, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> Got me to thinking, though, what is a Jew anyway? I mean, the classic answer involves two mutually exclusive categories. That's one of the reasons that if the joke works and one of the reasons nobody has a quick and easy answer. Judaism is one, both, one, a religion you know, beliefs and rituals. Two, Judaism is a people with a culture independent of religion. This poses a nasty problem for us assimilated Jews here in San Francisco. Sure, we're not quite as religious as we'd like, but at least we console ourselves. We are still cultural Jews. Cultural Jew has it a little bit easier because a cultural Jew doesn't have to believe anything or do anything religious to maintain his or her Jewish status because their very body is Jewish. You know, Judaism is a way of life. Everybody says that, but nobody knows what it means. Or, I'm Jewish in my gut. Or, I like bagels and locks and bargain basement shopping. I like to argue, etc., etc. Unfortunately, as we now begin to realize, there ain't no such thing as Jewish culture anymore. Even a generation ago, we still shared a, a common language. Yiddish, a common gastronomy, kosher, a common politics, democratic, common melodies, common dress code. But now, let me put it this way, on Polk Street, at the bagel factory, the young Asian woman who serves me my bagels in the morning, I notice flips the bacon with chopsticks. <laughs> we ain't in Kansas anymore. Here's the reality. There are also no longer any operative social signifiers for who is a Jew. Not family name, not facial structure, that's a euphemism for nose, not hair color, not ethnic style, not taste, not profession, not shared politics, not social values. The inevitable result of our assimilation means that we no longer have a distinguishable 
culture of our own. It is simply gone. Doesn't make me happy to report this, but it is a fact on the ground. And if we're going to make it, we're going to need to reclaim the religion part of being Jewish. But what is it? Might we drill down to something in Jewish religion that is irreducible, primal, indispensable? What I want to do in the, in the short time I have this evening, I always tell my rabbinic students to use that phrase, in the short time we have, it makes people feel better. But relax, it's going to last a long time. The sketch, I'd like to sketch out the beginning of a way back into Jewish religion for us assimilated Jews, including the speaker. You're not going to believe this, but the answer is really in this week's parasha. This week we get the Aseret Hadibrot, the ten utterances at Sinai. They are the touchstone, the font, the motherload, the very core of Judaism. The last five, numbers six through ten, seem obvious, universal. Murder, adultery, theft, perjury, covetousness, they are not unique to Judaism. Following them does not even make you a particularly moral or decent person. They only make you a human being. I always get a kick out of people saying, I'm a good person, I follow the Ten Utterances, I follow the Ten Commandments. And I think, let me get this straight, you don't commit murder, you don't steal, you don't commit adultery, you don't commit perjury. Gosh, it's an honor to meet such a moral human being. Judaism's calls these last five, bein adam lechavero, between one person and another person. It's the first five that we're focused on this evening. These are bein adam lomakom, between a person and God, and the nameless one. They are usually summarized in the following way incorrectly. One, believe in God, wrong. Two, no statues, wrong. Three, no cursing, wrong. Four, no physical labor on Shabbos, wrong. Five, love your parents and do what they say, wrong. <laughs> but read correctly, I submit, they may be the core of both an ancient and staggeringly 21st century Jewish religious worldview. Let's look at them a little bit more closely. One, Anochi Adonai Elohecha Asher Hotzeiticha Mi'eretz Mitzrayim Mi'beit Avadim. I am the Lord your God, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It's sort of God's business card. God, free slaves, call any time. What's noteworthy here, though, is what God puts on God's business card. It's the Mr. Freedom thing. 
I mean, I'm wondering, like, I think if I'm God, actually, I think that a lot, and I get to make up business cards. What am I going to put on my business cards if I'm God? I'm omnipotent. That'd be cool under your name. Made the universe pretty good. Made you nice. Wrote the Torah. Omniscient. I could put, but instead, our God chooses frees slaves. Apparently, the God of Israel, our God, isn't about creating the world or being powerful or being worshipped. The God of Israel is about getting free from whatever enslaves you. Political, economic, psychological, cultural. Look at it this way. One way or another, you're going to wind up serving something. Some folks think that because they feel free, they can do whatever they want. This illusion works as long as they don't examine why they want what they want. Because we are all, like it or not, swimming within a giant, largely benign, generically Christian 21st century American culture. It determines most of our opinions and our wants. To be truly free, though, you need some platform outside of it and from which you can evaluate everything. And serving God liberates you from your host culture. I am the Lord your God who frees you from whatever enslaves you. Call any time. Two. Lo Elohim acherim panai. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a sculptured image. Well, at least we're immune to satirical cartoons. Go ahead, I dare you. Try to do a cartoon satirizing the God of the Jews. There's nothing to draw. Not even a Buddha statue or a crucifix to remind you of God. No, the God of the Jews cannot, by definition, be visualized. I learned this from a fourth grader in the congregation in suburban Boston. I had the honor of serving for almost 30 years. I was sitting at my desk one afternoon when the religious school was in session. I always tried to sit at, be at my desk when the school was in session with the door open so people would walk by and see me. And people would say, Rabbi, you work so hard. I say, why? They say, because whenever I come into the temple, you're at the desk. I say, that's because I know when you're going to come to the temple. The fourth grader a teacher comes running down and shouts, quick, we need you right away. They're talking about God. Oh, it was like I got beeped. Sorry. And out of the fourth grader, said, group of like a dozen typical fourth grade nine, fourth nine-year-old kids. And I, I fall back in an old pedagogic trick. I say to them, tell me what you know about God. One says, made the world. I write on the board, made the world. Another said, God is one. I got that right. God is one. Another kid says, 
God is good. A couple people vote no, but the majority has it right. God is good. And then a fourth kid raises his hand and says, God's invisible. No, I start to write invisible, but before I can, another child says, no, God's not invisible. God's visible. He's right here now. To which the first kid reasonably says, I don't see him. What's he look like? To which the second kid says, that's just it. There's nothing to see. Three, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God for an empty reason. What's all this fuss about God's name anyway? Just a name. To which I say to you, suppose we asked you to write down the name of someone you loved very much. And then we ask you to tear up the piece of paper and burn it. Oh, I ain't going to do that. Now we realize that even the name of someone you love is precious. The name carries within it something of the referent. It turns out that the word G-O-D is not God's name. It's a generic name for any deity. This means that while it may be impolite, it is not religiously forbidden to say God damn it at appropriate times. <laughs> God's real name, yud Hey vav Hey, on the other name, is the intimate name by which we evoke our lover. I'll teach you how to read Hebrew without the dots while I'm standing on one foot. We know that the Phoenicians gave us the alphabet or the consonants, less widely known, but demonstrated, Joel Hoffman wrote it in a book just about 10 years ago, that the Jews gave us the vowels. I think that's really funny. I mean, the other people came up with the letters, but we came up with the vowels, the, the sounds by which consonants linger. Not the dots. But there are three letters in Hebrew that function primarily as vowels. Yud, E or A, Vav, O or U. When I grew up in Detroit, if the boy saw all the cookies on the shelf, he said, oh, if he ate all the cookies in his tummy, he said, ooh. And hey, ah or oh. If you try to pronounce Yud, hey, Vav, hey, you come up with that silly, Yahweh, which we used to call the Burger King name. Have it. Gotta be good. Instead of trying to pronounce the unpronounceable, when we Jews run across Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey, we respectfully say Adonai instead. These four vowel letters are also the root letters of the Hebrew verb to be. Am, is, was, will be, are, stuff like that. Scholars conjecture that it probably originally meant something like the one who brings into being all that is. That's the name of our God. That's the name you can't trash or use for a trivial reason. How holy is that name? It's so holy that it could only have been recited once a year on Yom Kippur by the high priest in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. 
It was so holy that he only could say it, nobody else. In the room he said it was so holy that if God forbid while a poor man was in there dropped dead of a heart attack, nobody could retrieve his corpse. So they solved the problem, says Rabbi Levi in the Zohar, by tying a rope around his leg. And how do you pronounce all the vowels at once? Yud, hey, and vav, the name of our God? Let me try to say it. There I said it. I said it again. That's how you say the name of our God. That is the name that you cannot trash. Don't use it for an empty reason. Four. Zachor at Yom HaShabbat show. remember the Sabbath day to make it holy. Refraining from physical labor is only the outward manifestation of the holy instructions. It's not involved with keeping the lights off or on or tearing toilet paper or doing things in advance of Shabbat, and it certainly isn't going to the movies or the ballet or the symphony. The core meaning of Shabbos is much more powerful and intimate than that. Uh, let me try to explain the fourth commandment this way. Suppose you're going on a big trip. It's long enough that you can't justify paying for parking at SFO. So you have to have a car come. So what you do is you're getting ready for the trip. You've already packed your suitcase maybe a day before. Maybe your partner packed his or her suitcase two days before. And you got the passports, and you got the plane tickets, and you got the electrical plug converters all packed away, and the tooth, you know, all that stuff. And then you sit down at your desk. Oh, my god, the desk is still a mess. And there are post-its all over on the computer screen, whatever it is. And you go to work. You write the bills. You send back the email. You send some other stick them in mail, whatever it is. And you're busy going through the list of last and the chores that are cluttering your desk and your brain and the reason you're going away in the first place. And from downstairs, your friend, your partner, spouse calls, honey, the car is here. But there are still a dozen post-its and note cards all over your desk. What do you do? I know what you do. You do what anybody does. You go, that's the news and I'm out of here. Does that mean that because you threw all the tasks onto the floor or into the wastebasket that they're done? No. Does that mean that they'll still be there when you come back? You better believe it, some of them with a vengeance. But what it means is, is that from that moment that you say, that's the news and I'm out of here, you formally enter a legal fiction in which you renounce the claim of any unfinished task or anything that needs to be done on you. You say, for the next 24 hours, it doesn't exist. I will now only pretend that the world is finished and done and that there's nothing else that I need to do. That's the news, and I'm out of here. Our sacred observance begins with a deed that has no action. And finally, 
Drum roll, please. Commandment number five. You shall honor your father and your mother. Some of you might have caught a New Yorker cartoon. It showed a, a family in, in Manhattan getting into a cab, winter time. It was air of Christmas, and they were father, wife, some kids. And the wife is saying to the cabbie, we're going to visit my parents. There's $50 in it if we never get there. Honoring parents is considered the hardest commandment in the whole Torah. Indeed, Talmud Yerushalmi suggests that it's probably impossible. Honoring parents does not mean that you've got to love them. Love cannot be commanded. Nor does it mean you must do what they say. You may have noticed, as they increase in age, they make increasingly preposterous requests. But honoring parents does require us to listen to them. Indeed, often that's all they want. And doing that turns out to be more than hard enough, at least for me it did when they were alive. In the words of my teacher, Arnold Jacob Wolf, honoring your parents means that you are commanded to take them seriously. You cannot be religious until you're whole, and you can't be whole until you've worked things out with your parents. Indeed, one of life's great tasks is figuring out why, of all the people in the world, God could have chosen to be the instruments through which you would come into being. God picked your parents. What the hell was he thinking? We begin to construct an answer when we take them seriously. Judaism as a religion? Oh yeah, that's the religion whose God frees slaves, whose God looks like nothing, whose God's name is the name of breathing, whose first ritual is pretending that the world is finished, and who begin by taking their parents or their memories of their parents very seriously. As Wolf was fond of reminding us, our job is not to keep Judaism alive. Only God can do that. Our job is to act like Jews. And the first five utterances lead us on our way back home again. Can I tell one story? I'm going to I'll tell it quick. Tell it real quick. Yeah. We spend our lives trying to get far away from our parents and trying to keep our children close. Let me say that again. We spend our lives trying to get far away from our parents, trying to keep our children close. But since everyone is both a child and a parent of the next generation, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out we got a problem here. Lots of parents wanting to keep their kids close. Lots of kids trying to get away. Lots of kids wishing they could go home but not being able to stand it once they get there. 
lots of parents eager for their kids to go back to school but not being able to stand it once they've left. It's crazy. Like dogs, they love to jump into the car, and as soon as they're into the car, they love to jump out of the car. Comedian Gary Shandling says he just leaves both car doors open. They jump in, they jump out, it goes on for hours. We have it worse. We do it with our parents our whole lives. I remember how almost 40 years ago, Karen and I hid at the window watching our oldest child wait at the edge of the driveway for the big yellow school bus. The bus was so big, she literally had to climb up on the first step. We hid behind the drapes and cried. I remember how years ago she called us in Boston from Los Angeles, where she was then a graduate rabbinic student. She wanted to tell us what she was preaching to the folks where she is a student intern. I asked her to send us a copy. Why, she asked, so we can put it on the refrigerator. <laughs> Next to your report card, I joked, but it wasn't a joke. I remember the first week I spent at college. I took the old Baltimore and Ohio sleeper from Detroit down to Cincinnati. I had to register for courses, move into a dorm room, meet classmates, open my first checking account, buy textbooks, attend orientations, do homework, and of course set the world on fire. There was no turning back. I remember sitting at my desk watching the cars go by on Clifton Avenue thinking how nice it would be to just be back home, but deciding that since it was probably going to be like this for the rest of my life, I'd better get used to it. But I cried anyway. Then I went to bed. How could I have known that at that very moment my parents also held one another and wept? Why do people cry about everything they've prayed for? First time I came home from the University of Cincinnati was Thanksgiving. The night air was cold with the intimation of snow. One of the guys in my dorm drove this old Citroën which had hydraulic suspension. When you turned on the ignition, the car made a funny hissing sound and raised itself a few inches. He was from Toronto, had to drive through Detroit on his way home. Two other guys and I hitched a ride with him. Long sections of the route were still down the streets of Ohio farm towns, so the trip took over eight hours. We didn't get home until after 10. As we pulled into the driveway, I saw my mother standing on the front porch. She was dressed awfully nice for a Wednesday evening at home. I am sure of this because she was wearing this garish gray and pink blouse with rhinestones all over it. It was the only time I'd ever seen her wear it. I had given it to her for her birthday the year before and had forgotten all about it. And now, there she was on the front porch, in the middle of the night, wearing it like a lighthouse, guiding the Citroen's precious cargo home. Even my father had positioned himself in a chair he hated, but which did offer a commanding view of the driveway. Working the crossword puzzle, he looked up for a moment. 
My mother walked out to the car and held me at arm's length so as to take all of me in and examine the merchandise. This adventurer from Ohio who had come forth from her body. My God, why didn't you call? We were so worried that something had happened to you. Would your friends like to come inside for some coffee and some fresh-baked pie? My, my, my mother had never baked a thing in her life. <laughs> no, thank you. They were all very late and eager to get back on the road, so I took my valise and went inside. At the time, you see, I didn't understand about parents and the simple power of going away and coming back. I now realize that this setting out and returning home again is a kind of dance that we do with our source and our destiny. We spend our lives learning and rehearsing the steps first as children and then from the other side as the parent generation. And if we learn it right, when our time comes to die, we are not afraid. It is not unlike the last words of the Hasidic master, Rabbi Simcha Bunim, who as he was dying took his wife's hand and asked, why are you crying? My whole life was only that I might learn how to die. We say Yashar Koach. Can you say that for me? Yashar Koach. Rabbi, what an honor. Thank you for teaching.